There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Hey, everybody. Hey there. How you doing? How's it going? Welcome back to part two of this amazing episode. Yes. This ridiculous episode. I'm so excited about it. I got to tell you, honestly, I mean, we're, we're getting into the second part here today, and this has been probably personally one of, if not my favorite stories. Mm -hmm. uh, Y'all have to hear it to understand why, because <laughs> it's so good and amazing and heartbreaking and fascinating. And it's just one of those stories about history that makes you realize how just little things echo so mm -hmm. much throughout history. And we're still living in a world that would be very different in any, if any of this one person's story had been any different. Yeah. The world, the whole world might be different, you know? Mm. I love that stuff. But real quick, before we get into it, unfortunately, we have to go put ourselves in corrections corner. You're such a loser. Yes. One of our listeners, Fiona H., reached out through email and said, 
Hey guys, just wanted to say I'm a huge fan of the show and have been listening since day one. The Ooh. first episodes actually came out on my birthday. Well, happy, happy birthday, birthday and you're welcome. <laughs> I will always know your birthday too because we know our launch day. So yep. uh, we'll be thinking of you. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely love the great mix of stories that you guys tell, and I really appreciate how well you're able to mix your humor with the more sensitive topics. I look forward every week to the episodes. And as an American who studies in Scotland, like Eli, I'm a fellow upstate New Yorker. What? Hey, your podcast definitely keeps me sane on those eight-plus-hour flights. I'm even currently reading Ellen and William Craft's book, which is one of my favorite of your episodes. Oh, that's uh, amazing. awesome. I'm so glad someone's reading it because I loved it. Yes, that's one of my so favorite good. episodes too. Yeah. But yes, she found a correction. She says, uh-huh. uh, from your most recent episode, which I absolutely loved, Maximilian and Carlotta, at one point, Diana mentions that Napoleon III was not as ruthless a conqueror as his father was, who I'm assuming you presume to be Napoleon I. But Napoleon III's father was actually Napoleon's brother, Louis Bonaparte. Napoleon I's only legitimate child was Napoleon II, who died at 21. Mm-hmm. True. That is true. That That's is more true. of a verbal typo than anything else, but important clarification. Typo, but yes, thank you for that. Yeah, because uh, <laughs> yeah, the, the Napoleons don't go in a straight line. It's true, and it's like the Louis. Like some of those Louis also jumped over to oh, yeah. uncles, kids, right. brother or something. Right. right. You weren't Louis the Third, as in my father was Louis, my grandfather Louis says, I'm the third king named Louis. Named Louis, yeah. That's how it works. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so thank you for sending yes, that in. Appreciate it. Fiona. Uh, uh, very important distinction, I think. And actually, it kind of might even matter a little bit moving forward into this episode. True. Uh, the other one, this is a self-correction. This mm-hmm. is something I caught while I was editing part one and, <laughs> and writing part two. We had said in part one that Franz Ferdinand the Archduke whose assassination sparked World War One, was the Emperor Franz Joseph's son. So he was Maximilian's nephew. Uh, but Franz Ferdinand was actually the son of Max and Franz Joseph's younger brother, Karl Ludwig. So Max and Emperor Franz Joseph were both Franz Ferdinand's uncles. Uh, and that actually is very important moving forward in this episode. So mm-hmm. that's a distinction that was necessary to make. Man, we're getting the uncles all wrong. Lots of all the uncles, uncles were wrong. Well, it yeah, just goes to show everybody. Every European royal was another European royal's uncle or nephew. Oh, <laughs> it's just a big pretzel. Right, of... and they all had like four names to choose from. Yeah. Apparently. All right. So I don't want to waste any more time here. We got to get straight into this episode. There's so much to tell, mm-hmm. and I mean, I'm telling you guys, it broke my heart just to edit this story down to what it is that we're sharing with you in these two parts because there is so much more. There's an amazing book that we. Read referenced in part one. It's called The Crown of Mexico, Maximilian and His Empress Carlotta by Joan Haslip. That book came out in 1972. And that's where a lot of this story comes from. Uh, Another book apparently just came out this past year in 2021 called The Last Emperor of Mexico. And that is by Edward Shawcross. Uh, I'm excited to read that one too. I am, I, I am, Almost ready to just devote the rest of my life <laughs> to studying these two people because I am so into it. Yeah, uh, so thanks I, again to Paulo yes. Pizar Aceves who suggested this episode. Seriously. Because you t- you sent Eli on a whole new journey. <laughs> Cannot thank you enough. I'm so excited about that. So let's go ahead and get started on part two. I just want to recap for you all here real quick. In part one, Maximilian and Charlotte were this young married couple who tried to bring progressive change to Lombardy-Venetia, a kingdom in Italy that was part of the Austrian Empire. 
The Italians loved Max and Charlotte and all their progressive reforms, but Max's brother, the Austrian emperor Franz Joseph, didn't take too kindly all this newfangled liberalism and, and basically doubled down on all of his oppressive efforts in Italy. But then, after almost being assassinated, Emperor Napoleon III of France decided to help the Italians kick the Austrians out of Italy for good. Austria lost the war, lost all their territories in Italy, and Max and Charlotte, despite being such beloved rulers, were kicked out, and they decided to just get out of the royal family game and go live in their castle Miramar in Trieste. They tried their best, made some good memories, and it was time for them to leave the Age of Empires behind and just retire in their 20s. But there's a new offer coming, and this was going to make their crazy, difficult lives even worse. So I say, if I hope that caught you up <laughs> to speed. If you haven't heard part one, go listen to it now. Seriously. Otherwise, I say, let's just get going. Yeah, let's go. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show ridiculous romance. A production of iHeartRadio. All right, so stay with me here. <laughs> Max went to go meet his wife at their castle in Miramar after... The war ended, Italy was gone, they didn't have anything left to do, just went back to their home. And this was the first time that the two of them had been just living together as private citizens. They had no court other than their attendance. They had virtually no responsibilities. Max was like, he was still technically the admiral of the Austrian fleet, but psh, you know, mm. what is that? <laughs> His duties <laughs> were mostly nominal at this point. They just lost a war, so they're, you know, rebuilding at most, I guess. Charlotte still helped out with a few charities and hospitals, but mostly they were just chilling. They loved this garden that they'd planted, and they had summer days on the beach. They had aviaries with greenhouses and tropical birds and plants everywhere, and all the frustrations and complications of the courts were behind them. Sounds pretty good. I mean, I would take this life. I want an aviary. I know, right? Yeah, a tropical aviary. Mm -hmm. Max was obsessed with this kind of stuff. He was the gardener. He was. Oh, yeah. He loved all this exotic shit. Um, but it wasn't long before Charlotte started to get restless. She had missed Max so much while he was away at war, and she spent most of that time being terribly worried about him. Now that he was home, she believed that he was still the greatest leader in Europe, and he was just trapped here with no one to lead. Mm. She very much thought that Max was worth so much more than what he'd been given. Meanwhile, his brother, the Emperor Franz Joseph, was getting booed and hissed in the streets after losing the war in Italy. Well, he did botch it. I mean, real bad, with a bunch of terrible, stupid decisions. Uh -huh. So he deserved some boos and hisses. And there were chants of, long live the Archduke Max! Wow. I mean, that was... Like, perfectly calculated to make him super resentful of Max. Yeah. And be like, ugh, he's such a goody two-shoes. Everybody loves Max. Everyone loves Max. <laughs> and Charlotte started hearing these chants. And, of course, like you said, she's already thinking, uh, yeah, he's the best in the world. So she starts daydreaming about him on a throne, Max yeah. on a throne. And she's just more and more in love with him all the time. She wanted so much more for him than early retirement. Yeah. She just stand the she shit really out of did. Max. She was obsessed with Max. Yeah. 
Now, Max and Franz Joseph's mother, Archduchess Sophia, tried to get them all together to make up. So she pulled one of those moves where you, like, invite both people out to your country home, but you don't tell them that the other one is coming, oh. right? So they showed up and they're like, oh, mom, it's so good to see you. Oh, I'm so happy to come out and spend some. Thank you for inviting me. This sounds so great. <laughs> oh, he's here. Well, I'm not going to. I'm not having dinner you, with him. Mom. Mom, you this didn't tell me he was coming. Me. Yeah, one of those. But, you know, it's their mother. So for her sake, they decide, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll try to get along. Mm -hmm. And they agree that they won't talk politics. They'll stick strictly to family stuff. Classic move. Right. <laughs> Although I have to ask what family stuff is, if not politics, when your family is the emperor and archduke of Austria. Yeah, yeah. he's like, well, so how, how's the aviary, Max? How's I it? mean, are all the birds... Alive. Birds are alive, yeah. Still alive, yeah. great. Birds are alive, birds are alive. That's great. How's your court jester? Oh, still alive. Oh, well. Well, well, we both have things that are still alive. Great. Thank you. It was really hard to keep him alive, I'll tell you that much, because he started to sing a song about... But we're not talking politics, oh, I won't. Same with the birds. <laughs> they kept saying, down with Franz Joseph, but I was like, <laughs> who taught him that? So they actually end up having a really great time. Mm -hmm. Franz Joseph was obviously feeling pretty down because his whole country hated him. And Max was just too damn nice to not try and make him feel better. Aww. So it's still Max doing all the work. Okay. You know, isn't that a classic abusive relationship, too? <laughs> the guy who's been giving you such a hard time is like, oh, I feel bad now. And you're like, well, let me put all my feelings aside and make you feel better. Right. But that's Max. Remember how I did a terrible job? Never was making me feel like shit for doing such a bad job. <laughs> Everyone called me a bully, and that made me feel bad. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the trip, it didn't get him anywhere. Max still left as empty-handed as when he came. And back at Miramar, Max wrote in his journal that he was, quote, renouncing the vanities of the world to live far removed from the deceit, the weariness, and the fraud we've experienced in the last years, content to retire to a serene and sunny climate, studying the arts and sciences, and cultivating my garden. Great. Seriously. Yeah, Can sounds I good. please retire to a castle and just study the arts and sciences? <laughs> Do it, Max. He's full cottage core at this point. Right. <laughs> but he was also... Like, restless and unsatisfied. I mean, it's really nice to go hang out in your garden and study and stuff. But he was a guy who liked to be out in the world, moving and shaking. Yeah. So he tried getting real into Charlotte because she was awesome. And she had been an excellent partner in Vice Rain in Italy. She offered him great advice and sound judgment. He admired her a lot. They worked really well together. I guess he was kind of like, look, I have this wife. I guess I should, I don't know, try to mac on her a little bit. Right, right. <laughs> But she was also kind of clingy, maybe a little too passionate for him because she's so into him and he just didn't really have the same level of romance in right. his heart for her or yeah, whatever. Yeah. So, yeah, he just wasn't a very romantically stimulated person. He yeah, really liked yeah. experience and challenges and, again, just being out in the world. Right. I don't even think it was her necessarily specifically that he wasn't into. He Would just wasn't anyone. into someone hanging on his shoulder and batting their eyelashes. That just That just wasn't interesting for him. Yeah. Yeah. But they did hit it off pretty well for a summer, at least. Um, people who saw them together at this point said they looked and sounded like a young couple who were freshly in love. They even carved their initials on a tree and they laughed together. Yeah, and sweet. Just classic. classic. Yeah, 20-year-old yeah. romance right. type stuff. Charlotte told him in French, quote, Oh, Max, if only we could always be as happy as today. 
but a few months later, Max went to go pull a Dorothy Putnam and take a cruise to the new world to clear his head. (laughs) (laughs) So a bad experience in a storm at sea made Charlotte want to stay behind. She was like, you you go ahead. I'm going to hang out in Portugal while Max went off over the Atlantic to explore the new world. Around this time, Charlotte's diaries suggest that she was starting to realize their marriage wasn't quite as idyllic as she had thought that it was. You know, they had been sleeping in separate rooms for a while now. Haslip in her book writes that this is probably because Max, who, like we said, already wasn't a very sex and romance driven person, only ever found passion in new experiences and exotic things. And he could just, quote, no longer function as a man, while Charlotte was both too proud and too inexperienced to consult with her doctor or ask the advice of her older ladies in waiting. Man, you know. That's so sad when you go back in history and there's so many women who just have no fucking idea what's supposed to be happening yeah. in in that situation yeah. or how any of that works. And it's so awkward to ask and there's no one to ask. And yeah. you might ask someone who really had terrible experience and they let you know how terrible it is. You know right, what I mean? Right, like, right. You just don't have a lot of good information. It's yeah. really sad. I think it sucks. Well, and she's also very concerned about judgment and things like that. So she doesn't want to go and give the impression that her marriage is anything less than perfect to anyone. Yeah. And I mean, it's so often blamed on the woman if the guy's not performing or something anyway. Yeah. So Charlotte was kind of mopey and depressed while Max was away. And Max's early diaries from the trip are kind of sad too. He wrote that he was, quote, a melancholy pilgrim weighed down by the burdens of the past. Sure. But then he got to Brazil. Oh, Brazil. Oh, yeah. And his whole attitude changed. He loved it there. It was hot sun, tropical fruit, exotic wildlife. I mean, Max felt alive. He was like a kid again. He was having the ultimate vacay. He visited this gorgeous lake where he lay in, quote, grass so soft and green that it might have been an English park laid in a tropical setting. That sounds nice. Uh, Yeah. I'm like ready to go to Brazil now also. (laughs) Not that I wasn't before. (laughs) He also explored with a botanist in the jungle. And this huge butterfly landed on his face. And his guide killed a venomous snake just as it was about to strike. Whoa. And Max wrote in his diary, quote, Today, I have spent one of the happiest days of my life. Awesome. Amazing. Yes. He would would have probably written something different if the snake had gotten him. If the snake had bit him, yes. (laughs) He'd be like, the day was great, and then a snake bit me, and now it sucks. <laughs> but <laughs> I no, hate Brazil. <laughs> but if a guy kills it right before it gets to you, then right. it's like, whoa, Holy that was shit. so exciting. Oh, my God. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and like everything tastes a little bit sweeter. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then he saw the darker side of the new world, mostly slavery. Mm-hmm. And you know Max, like he is one of the most progressive people in his age, and mm-hmm. it's it's really shocking. This was totally not cool with him. He wrote, quote, They who degrade their fellow men call themselves citizens of a free country, which is said to prosper from such institutions. They never sense the disgrace, the shame that lies in these words. Is not religion a mockery when a white man arrogates the right to treat men who, like himself, are born in the image of the creator as if they were beasts of burden or bales of goods? Mm. Tell him, yes. Max. Tell him how it is. Tell how it. hypocritical 
what bullshit. Absolutely. For these people talking about, oh, this is the modern era and we're so free and wonderful. By the way, all of that is because we have slaves. Okay. Like, outrageous. And it's uh, just always want to stress the fact Mm -hmm. that any point, at any point that slaves were happening, it was not cool with a lot of people. Yes. It's not like it was like cool and fine and socially acceptable. And nobody knew any better. And no one knew any better. And then there was some weird paradigm shift one day. No. No. There There were were plenty of people. Always maxes out there. Yeah. Plenty of people, rich, poor, white, whatever, Uh being like, this is not cool. What the fuck are we doing? Yep. Max also saw European clergy adapting pagan rituals into Christian ceremonies and exploiting the locals' gullibility, and this offended him both as a liberal and a Christian. Wow. Yeah. Religious freedom? (laughs) What? Max is like, stop stealing their shit, calling it Christian, and then selling it back to them. Mm -hmm. That's so wrong. But in spite of his disgust of slavery and the government and the clergy... (laughs) He was still fascinated with South America. He thought that all in all, life seemed a lot freer here than back in Europe. He said, quote, One of the charms of America is that no one asks you whence or wherefore you have come. And America is the perfect asylum for those who want to break with the stormy past and work their way to a brighter future. I get that feeling. Oh, that, uh, you know, that's what nobody is asking you where you're from because then you might ask where they're from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe like, I'm, I'm not going to ask because yeah. I don't want you to ask me. I feel like it's the opposite now. Like, I want to leave America and have nobody ask like, me, what, ask me. <laughs> where I'm from. <laughs> I'm Canadian. I'm Canadian. <laughs> All good trips must come to an end, though, sadly, and as Dorothy Putnam found out yes, many times. true. And we all learn at some point. And soon they both returned to Miramar, and both of them were pretty depressed. Max was restless. Charlotte was ignored. Both of their characters were starting to sour. Mm. He expressed openly and often how tired he was growing of Europe and how disastrous he thought the future there was going to be, writing, quote, Maybe I am too much of a pessimist, but I'm trying to put my affairs in order in the event of a crisis. Like, he thinks like some... Shit's about to go down. Shit's about to blow up in Europe. And he's it's, not wrong, He's really. like, it's the late 1800s, and something tells me that, like, I don't know, in the next 30 to 50 years, <laughs> Austria is going to be involved in, in like, something that's going to get bad. I don't know what. I, I don't know. I just can't put my finger on it. So everybody knew, because he was so vocal about it, right. that Max was bummed out and wanted something new. They also knew that Max was beloved by everyone and he just always wants to do the right thing. So this is probably why in 1859, he was approached by members of the Mexican nobility with a strange offer. All right, everybody, everybody keep it down. Don't tell our main story, but we're going to go take a quick fling with history. I'm so confused. Okay, so... Here's the entire history of Mexico as quickly as we can tell it. (laughs) The Spanish came to Mexico in 1519, and before that, they were a flourishing empire ruled by Montezuma of the Aztecs. They had incredible architecture, beautiful art, and advanced science. But the Spaniards came in, and they conquered them. And on the ruins of the Aztec civilization, they built New Spain. Just to sum up a couple thousand years of history there for you. (laughs) For the next 300 years... There was no real monarchy in Mexico proper. The Spanish king ruled by proxy with viceroys and vice reigns mm-hmm. that came to Mexico to kind of rule in his stead. Right. And if you want to hear more about the viceroys and vice reigns in Mexico, 
check out our episode about Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz. Yeah. The nun. She was amazing. Mm-hmm. And there's a really cool episode there Very about cool. the vice reign that she fell in love with. Mm-hmm. Uh, super cool. Check it out. So the Spaniards came over from Europe to control the central government of Mexico. Anybody in charge came from Spain. Even white people who were born in Mexico had very little say in the governing of their own country. So after the American Revolution and then later the French Revolution, people in Mexico were kind of be like, maybe we should have a Mexican Um, revolution. Anybody ever think about that? (laughs) I guess we don't just have to put up with all this shit. (laughs) (laughs) Turns out we could just have a revolution. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys did it. And then those guys did it. Uh, They could do it. I could do it. So from 1810 to 1821, a brutal war was fought for Mexican independence. Then finally, Augustin Iturbide proclaimed Mexico as an independent empire and crowned himself emperor. All right. Emperor in Mexico. Great sure. job. And that lasted for about two years. Oh, no. <laughs> before he was exiled to Europe and eventually executed by his own people for various corruption and treason charges. Mm-hmm, Pretty mm-hmm. good reason to yep. execute an emperor. Right. Again, we're rushing through it here, I but know, that's yeah. the Just long and short it up, of it. Just wrapping it up, wrapping it up. He was one of two emperors that Mexico ever had in its history. Mm-hmm. And then Mexico spent the next 40 years in a civil war with centralists, liberals, and conservatives who were backed by the church, all locked in a constant struggle for power. In a 30-year period, Mexico had 30 presidents. Oh, God. Like, Can you like, imagine? That reminds me of the Whoa. Maha Vajir Longhorn episode where we oh, found yeah. out they had 20 constitutions in like 20 right. years yeah. or something. Well, I mean, God, I, I'm just imagining as an American going through a new president every, every year. year. Whoa, I know, every four years is already too much. I know, sometimes. it's exhausting. <laughs> I mean, like, y'all talk about elections a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so England recognized Mexico's independence very quickly because mm-hmm. they wanted to get in on them sweet, sweet trade deals. Talk about that trade. Soon after that, France did the same. And eventually even Spain acquiesced mm-hmm. and was like, fine, you're an empire, your own thing, whatever. Then, in 1823, American President James Monroe delivered a speech which established the Monroe Doctrine. And that was basically a a little rule that America had for itself that said, we're not going to tolerate any more European colonization on the American continents. Mm -hmm. Get out. We're not having it. We've seen it before. That's our job. (laughs) (laughs) We won't put up with any more colonization. We only want to do the colonizing. (laughs) Meanwhile... Conservatives in Mexico were pushing for a monarchy. They wanted like an emperor, king and queen. They wanted all that stuff in Mexico. They didn't like all this, you know, liberal Mm -hmm. uh, elections and presidents and stuff like that. They wanted a legit monarchy. So in the 1830s, they started batting the idea around about what if we got one of these like European monarchs to come over here and be a proper emperor, Mm -hmm. right? Like, Somebody who's got a family name, somebody who knows the business of empires and regencies to get over to Mexico and set up a real good monarchy here Mm -hmm. that we can basically be in charge of. Yeah. You know, uh, enough with these presidents and uh, how much this was probably racism because there was a lot of indigenous people living in Mexico at the time. And of course, they wanted progressive reforms. Mm -hmm. The conservatives were like, no, we want an emperor. Yeah. So let's go grab one of these guys in Europe who's like somebody's nephew Uh and bring him over here to be an emperor. Well, plus you're like, cool, an emperor, he'll be in power for many years, hopefully. And so I'll have his ear for a very long time instead of this president that might change frequently. And then I got to fucking deal with this new guy. True. 
Like, that, who wants that? Now, in the 1830s, nothing actually came of this. It, mm-hmm. it was talked about, but it was also argued about, shot down. And they had other things to worry about. So at this point, nothing happened in terms of that. Yeah. But they put the idea in their back pocket, maybe for later. Mm, little tease. Mm-hmm. So in 1858, Benito Pablo Juarez Garcia was the first indigenous person to become president of Mexico. There you go. Yeah. He was the liberal head of the Supreme Court who assumed the presidency when the previous president was forced to resign by the conservatives. Ah. So, of course, the conservatives want him out, too. Right. And a three-year civil war broke out. They just went from civil war to civil war. Seriously. Period of time. What? You're telling me (laughs) that... Uh, the the liberals won the uh, president in the right, office, right. and the conservatives didn't accept that no. and actually tried to start a war to stop I'll, it? Uh, yeah. I've never heard such a thing. Swiss. Fortunately, these kinds of things don't happen. <laughs> and the liberals trounced the conservatives on the battlefield. All right. Nice. And President Juarez had full control in January of 1861. Go, go, Juarez. Under the conservative government, Mexico had taken out some pretty hefty loans from England, Spain, and France because, Mm. as we know, wars cost money. Sure, sure. And so when President Juarez was like, okay, I'm in charge now, he basically was like, guess what? I'm not paying any of this back right now. I'm going to put a two-year hold on that. Uh Also, I'm not going to count any of the interest for those two years. We're just going to – this number is not going to move. Yeah. (laughs) You're not getting no money from me at this time. (laughs) You get it when you get it. (laughs) Uh, And England and Spain were kind of like, fine, whatever. (laughs) Like, get back to me. Hit me up later. Uh Uh-huh. But France had other plans. Uh Uh-huh. First of all, they did want their money back. All right. That's a normal reason. Sure. But they also wanted access to the enormous trade market that was growing in Central and South America. Not to mention, the U.S. was getting pretty big uh-huh. and a little bit cocky right oh, now. Yeah. And they kind of were like, let's put a European power right in their backyard so that we can balance a little bit of that power out. Right. You know, let's be right next door and mm-hmm. be like, what you doing? Hey, what you think you're doing? Mm-hmm. And then maybe they'll back the fuck off. <laughs> and that brings us back to Emperor Napoleon III. Hey, there he is. Yeah. I mean, this is the guy that kicked, that helped the Italians kick the Archduke Max out of Italy and and helped free Italy from Austrian control. When the Mexican conservatives lost the civil war to President Juarez, they went into hiding basically and they pulled out their old plans and they're like, hey, hey, uh, you guys remember that thing we talked about, about having a European monarch rule Mexico? I mean, uh, anybody else think that sounds super sexy right now? Huh? 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 Are you in? You in? Let's give it a whirl, man. So they were like, well, let's go to Europe and start talking to people. They get there and they caught the attention of Emperor Napoleon III of France. And they're like, hey, buddy, why don't you come over to Mexico and help us start our own little empire over there? And you'll love it. It's going to be great. We're going to be best friends with France if you help us do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll be awesome. And at first... And we got tequila. Y'all oh, don't have got, that. Oh, we got so Y'all much tequila. Y'all don't have that. <laughs> the got no tequila. Y'all don't know about tequila, but it's delicious. <laughs> also, have you heard about limes? <laughs> um, and Napoleon at first was like, well, this sounds nice, but uh, I am not going to mess with the Monroe Doctrine. You know, the Americans, True. they said, uh, do not come over here, Europeans. And I don't feel like screwing with the Americans right now because they are uh, getting very powerful and they have all these things. Uh, this just in. <laughs> yeah, it was 1861. And in April of that year, 
the U.S. had a little problem of their own. The American Civil War! There it is. So, yeah, they were a little distracted. Right. And this seemed like a great chance for France to get everything they wanted in the New World. Mm-hmm. So... Citing Mexico's refusal to pay their debts, Napoleon III sends troops over to Mexico. French troops joined the remaining conservative generals. And at first, they get their asses kicked at the Battle of Puebla, May 5th, 1862. Hey. So for all the Americans out there sipping margaritas on Cinco de Mayo, that is what you're celebrating. That's it. Uh, this The winning of this battle. Right. Mexicans beating the French at a battle. I thought it was... I mean, you know, my ignorant ass. I thought Cinco de Mayo was Mexican Independence Day. It is definitely not, not that. Yeah, that was not it. was it. just one big battle that they won. It was important. <laughs> so they won this battle. They pushed back the French. It looked like it was all going to be okay. They're going to route this whole idea right out of, right out of Mexico. Mm-hmm. But then the French sent tons of reinforcements. And in late 1863, they had taken Mexico City. And President Juarez and his officials fled the city and became a government in exile. And the conservatives declared themselves in charge of the country Mm -hmm. with France at their back. Right. You know, they were like, it's us now. They spent some time setting up a new government. And they were kind of wondering, like, who is the the nephew or the uncle or the spare you know, floating around in right. all these monarchy families that we can get to come over here and take charge of this government. Ah, you know what would be good? We need a guy who's like young, like say he's like in his 30s, like uh-huh. 31 years old. Right. And like, I kind of want him to be sort of soft, you know what I mean? Because we want to lead him along. Mm-hmm. Like he's like a puppet on a string. So like a real bleeding heart, just yeah. like, I'll do whatever you say, softy soy boy. Soy boy. Yeah. <laughs> Find me a soy boy. Uh-huh. And you know what would be really extra good? This guy's like just sick to death of Europe, you know? Oh, yeah. I need a guy who's just fucking sick of Europe. Somebody who's gotten really like trashed and kicked around yeah. and just doesn't feel like doing it anymore. Is there anyone Is there who anyone? fits the bill? I don't know. Hmm. I got it. Maximilian of Austria. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. He fits the bill in every single way. Well, before we go check in with Max, we're going to take a quick commercial break, but we'll be right back. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but... 
you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bienvenidos back to the show, everyone. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to set the scene. Bilingual. This is better than Duolingo listening to our show. (laughs) Okay, so Max is kicking around Miramar, planting flowers in the garden to keep himself busy, playing with his little tropical birds, Mm -hmm. while Charlotte painted her days away. It was becoming more and more clear that Max had very little chance of taking over the Austrian throne or indeed any throne or Mm -hmm. governmental position or anything like that. I'm going to kind of skim over some of the really fascinating political wheelings and dealings here between the Mexican conservatives and the French Empire. But the long and short of it is they all came to the same conclusion that Max was the perfect choice to sit on the imperial throne in Mexico. When the idea came to Emperor Franz Joseph, he thought, well, I, I do hate Napoleon more than basically anybody, and I don't want to support anything that France is doing. <laughs> but then again, you know, I'd, be, I'd really give my bleeding heart little brother, who everybody loves so much, something to do. And it would get him out of my hair. So, uh, yeah, I'd say go talk to him about it. <laughs> Arnold, thank you, Arnold. <laughs> and, you know... Max ain't stupid. Right. It was a little fishy to him when they showed up and were like, hey, how about Mexico, you know? Right. But it also really blew his mind that his brother gave his blessing for it because they never agreed on anything. And Max felt like he'd basically retreated to Miramar to give his brother his space to rule without Max scandalizing him with all this progressive stuff, Mm -hmm. (laughs) run around being cool. (laughs) And Charlotte, who not only thought Max deserved you know, basically to be king of the world, Uh um, but was also bored out of her fucking mind, (laughs) thought it was a great idea. And she enthusiastically encouraged Max to take the title of emperor. And she's like walking around being like, Emperor Max, would you like to go out to the aviary? Doesn't that sound good? And Max wrote in his journal, quote, Now out of the blue comes the offer of the Mexican throne with the chance to free myself from a life devoid of action. Who, in my position, in youth and health, 
with a devoted and energetic wife spurring me on, would do other than accept the offer. Reasonable. Mm -hmm. If somebody offered me the throne of any country tomorrow, I'd be like, I feel like I'd be stupid to say no. I don't know. I'd, also, I'd be like, I'm not interested. Well. <laughs> We've done too much history to know that you don't want to accept that. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Max was smart and he was progressive and he thought the idea of a European power going into Mexico to set up a monarchist government was kind of outrageous and also destined for failure. Mm-hmm. But these guys knew Max well. He had a bit of a reputation, and they knew exactly how to talk to him. So they show up and they're like, oh my God, the people, Max, the Mexican people, they want you to come rule them Obsessed. seriously. Obsessed with you. They heard all about you and like how, just how cool you are. The and coolest. they like heard that you're like really progressive and like, yeah. don't we love that? Oh like, my God. Progressive. That's so cute. So cool. Right? Like, like that who makes does you, that? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, they just can't wait for you to come sit on the throne. It's like a total request live out here. <laughs> And you know Max loves it when the people love him. Mm -hmm. So this gets him thinking about it. And then to seal the deal, who showed up but Napoleon III himself. And he explained to Max how much he wanted to see him, quote, at the head of a great and noble enterprise, which would shed further glory upon his illustrious house. What could be more rewarding than to rescue a continent from anarchy and set an example of good government to the whole of North America? You got to imagine that Napoleon's probably pointing at the U.S. Civil War at this point and saying, eh, look where democracy gets you, huh? Mm. Uh, we should go and teach them a lesson, oui? Ah, yes. No other civil war was caused by anything other than <laughs> democracy. But we all know what Napoleon really wanted. He wanted easy access to Latin American trade and resources, and he wanted an ally in Mexico to help hinder U.S. growth. He told Max, quote, You may be sure that my support will not fail you. That's a quote. Remember it later. Yeah. He should have got that one in writing. Foreshadowing. He did get it in writing. The Treaty of Miramar. Oh, damn. <laughs> yeah. Never mind. But everyone who had ever been to Mexico was telling Max, like, don't do it. It's a straight up hornet's nest over yeah. there. It's a huge mess. You don't want to, <laughs> you do not want to stick yourself in the middle of this situation. Right. And then even President Abe Lincoln put out a little statement saying, quote, a foreign monarchy set up on Mexican soil would mark the beginning rather than the end of revolution in Mexico. Oh. He was basically like, should Europe choose to fuck around, it won't take no four score and seven years for them to find out. <laughs> That's uh, your your Abe Lincoln is uh, impeccable. I felt like he's I felt like he's here in the room with us. Well, it's actually um, a recording. Oh so wow, yeah. I have an Edison track right here. <laughs> but the French people were getting really fed up with all this rigmarole in Mexico. Oh, yeah. And so Napoleon was like, I mean, they're I sending need... you know they're sending troops over there. Yeah. When French people are dying, and they don't like that war. So Napoleon really needed to get Max over there as quickly as possible and just kind of get this whole situation off his plate. So they held a vote in Mexico and presented the results to Max. And they were like, Max, look at this. 100% of the people we polled want you as emperor. 100 unanimous. That's... Yeah, seriously. Like, impossible. <laughs> impossible. How do you say it? It's impossible, yeah. It's impossible. <laughs> yeah, they no, said, really, they said really. 7 million people voted and 7 million people voted for Max. That is not, that is shifty <laughs> as hell. 
And yeah, that was a very dubious poll. The French had full control over the areas where they held the vote and then obviously were probably pretty selective over who they asked to vote. And again, Max was smart. He didn't flat out believe everything about this. But to skim through a few months of back and forth conversation, this was one of the many things that led to his eventual acceptance of the job. By the time he said yes, they had fully convinced him that he had a mandate to rule from the entire population of Mexico. But even as Max accepted the offer, Napoleon's advisors were coming to him and saying, "Eh, Napoleon, you know, we got to get out of this game. We don't not want to do this emperor thing anymore. Mm. They thought at this point that it would be better to try and get President Juarez back and negotiate with him since wow. he did have most of the support of Mexico. But it's that damn sunk cost fallacy, you know? Mm. Napoleon was just in too deep. He had invested so much in this project at this point. He'd told so many people, no, this is going to work, mm-hmm. that uh, he couldn't pull out. Yeah. Despite literally telling one of his advisors about Max and Charlotte, quote, if I was in their place, I never would have accepted. Damn. I mean, so he knew straight up that this was a terrible idea. Yeah. But he's, sorry, Max. It seemed like everyone but Charlotte was having second thoughts. She thought Max was destined to become, quote, one of the most influential rulers in the world. But Max, to one of Napoleon's advisors, gave the impression, quote, not of having ventured on this dangerous enterprise with any enthusiasm, but rather as one who had given his word too hastily and had now to abide by his promises. So even Max is starting to give the impression of like, I probably shouldn't do this, but I already said I would. So I've got to. I'm a man of my word, you know. It's probably weird as hell to keep being told, like, everybody really wants you there. Don't worry. But then all around you, everyone looks more and more reluctant to even do their own project. You're like, this is your idea. Yeah. I imagine Napoleon's advisors and him all standing around a table going, oh, fuck, this is not going to. Oh, this is terrible. This is terrible. Holy shit. This Mexico thing is so bad. And then Max walks in the room and they're like, hey, Emperor Max. Oh, it's so good to see you. We were just talking about how great Mexico is going to be. (laughs) More like Mexico. More like Mexico. (laughs) (laughs) But the gears were turning. Everything was in place. This was happening, no matter how reluctant Max was at this point. And then at the last minute, practically right as Max was getting on the boat in 1864, an envoy from his brother, the emperor, showed up and was like, Oh, um, by the way, accepting the crown of Mexico means you give up all hereditary rights in Austria. P.S. Just wanted to throw that out there right as you were leaving. Yeah. And Max couldn't believe that that had not, like, come up earlier. Like, (laughs) part of the negotiations for this job was, like, by the way, you can't ever come home again. Uh Uh-huh. Because at the end of the day, Mexico was just a substitute for what he really wanted, the hereditary rights of the throne in Austria. Right. But Franz Joseph asked Max, quote, out of love of Mexico and its inhabitants, to prove his devotion to his new country by renouncing his Austrian rights. That's like, so dirty. That's so low. Uh-huh. That's so, like, manipulative. And Max was, like, grumpy about that, but he also kind of dismissed it. Charlotte wrote in a later letter that he was still third in line for the Austrian throne. But if it ever came down to it, it's unlikely he would have actually been able to claim that title. Yeah. Honestly, not 100% sure what Charlotte meant by that because it was within the emperor's power to strip to Max strip of his of his hereditary rights, and he did. Well, she might have just been in her own... I mean, she was had, in her, her own, own head story all the time. going on. Yeah. 
But whatever, it doesn't matter. Who cares about Austria? True. Max and Charlotte were going to Mexico. Yeah. They had the full support of the French army at their backs and the goodwill of the Mexican people there to welcome them. Ahead of his arrival, the streets of Mexican cities were lined with copies of Max's manifesto, in which he vowed to work day and night for the welfare of the Mexican people, to work diligently for their prosperity, and that, quote, having won their glorious independence, they could now enjoy the benefits of civilization. So Max and Charlotte sailed across the Atlantic, and they landed with fresh excitement at the port of Veracruz early in the morning in the summer of 1864. Cannon fire from French warships heralded their arrival. They stepped out into the streets to greet their people, and... Uh, where is everybody? Well, it was early. <laughs> and quite frankly, like, nobody cared. Mm. And they'd heard all these promises before. This was just another guy saying some stuff yeah, that yeah. you probably think I want to hear, but you're never going to do shit. Right. You trifling. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 30 presidents in, presidents in 30 years. Yeah, You've heard a lot, a of, promises lot of promises that never got kept. Yep. So, yeah. I believe that. <laughs> and the port town of Veracruz was very liberal. They probably really missed President Juarez. Mm -hmm. You know, they were definitely not into an emperor situation. So their escorts hurried them through the silent streets and ushered them into stagecoaches for a 250-mile ride to Mexico City. How weird. I mean, again, like, look at the contrast here of everyone in Europe telling them, Mexico can't wait for you. Yeah. You're the god they're waiting for. The, certainly the god-chosen emperor mm -hmm. that they have been You're waiting like for here. BTS guys. They, yeah, they, it's going to be, <laughs> yeah, straight up like Screaming. Paul McCartney just showed yeah. up. They're going to be losing their minds. And then you get there and it is no one gives a shit. Dead they're silent. not happy to see you at all. Max found the silence strangely calming. But Charlotte's spirit broke for the first time since Max accepted the offer. Mm. She spent most of the ride in tears. Oh. Which, again, if you've really convinced yourself of something yeah. and it comes to it, like, that really hurts. Yeah. And I think she was so sure that everyone felt the same way about yeah. him that she did that it really hurt her feelings. That there was nobody there, like, waving flags and throwing flowers. Yeah. Max loved the rustic road to Mexico City. It's wide expanses of uninhabited countryside, tropical jungles, huge bushes of flowers. I mean, he loved his gardens. We know that. And he would find that the indigenous people now living as Mexicans shared a similar love for brightly colored flowers. So mm. he's like, this place is great. I'm, I'm fine. Charlotte was very unhappy with the rough conditions of their journey. She wrote, quote, The Mexicans kept apologizing for the abominable road. But we kept assuring them we didn't mind in the least bit. As a matter of fact, it was ghastly beyond all words, and we needed all our youth and good humor to get off without a cramp or a broken rib. Oh, damn. I'm picturing one of these things where Max is just like leaning out the carriage and having a wonderfully singing, and there's flowers falling and butterflies <laughs> landing on his arms. A little hummingbird lands on his finger. He's having the greatest time. And then we cut to Charlotte, and she's like, there's mud all over her. She's miserable. There's like a frog jumps on her face. Ugh, it's like <laughs> it's that like meme of the people everywhere. looking out the two sides of a bus. Oh, yeah, yes, yes. That's Except Max and Charlotte. One side is he's a dog with his head out the window. That might be included in our meme for this that episode. That might have to be the meme. <laughs> but then they spent Charlotte's 24th birthday in Puebla, where the French held this elaborate ball in her honor. And they had a fireworks display that put a likeness of Miramar Castle in the sky in big golden flowers. Wow, that's pretty, yeah. that's pretty dope. 
She wrote that the display made her feel that she was, quote, among my own people in my own country, surrounded by loving friends. Mm. She responded to the kindness by gifting 35,000 francs to be spent on restoring a hospital that she had noticed was in ruins in Puebla. But within days, she and Max were both horrified by these huge contrasts in how the rich and the poor lived in Mexico. She found the indigenous people to be, quote, in the highest degree of intelligence, but noted that these tiny governments that kept turning over in Mexico, quote, never had any root in the native population, which is the only one which works and enables the state to live. So again, damn, Charlotte just seeing things and calling them out. Yeah. You're, Speaking the truth. All the all the indigenous, the, the former Aztec descendants that are living mm-hmm. here as Mexicans now mm-hmm. are doing all your damn work. Okay. All the hard labor. And none of your policies favor them. That's yeah. crazy. And for them to see that in their first few days, mm-hmm. they really, I mean, on one hand, President Juarez was the same kind of ruler who wanted those kinds of reforms. He was very progressive, mm-hmm. um, but he didn't have the power because the conservatives were, you know, were fighting against him all the time, trying to undermine him and all this shit. So yeah. it's weird. Yeah. It's weird. Yeah, because it's like, Sure, you need someone who's going to be on your side who does have some power. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, she's clearly noticing, like, y'all are straight up white savioring this this country, yeah. and you can't do that. Right. That's not how it works. So it's never going to work. Do you get a white savior to come in and stop white savioring from happening? <laughs> how do you fix a problem like Maria? <laughs> They were officially crowned emperor and empress on June 10th, 1864, and they were given the names Maximiliano and Carlotta. On June 12th, they received an enthusiastic, beautiful welcome by conservatives, liberals, and indigenous peoples alike. Maximilian wore the full dress uniform of a Mexican general, and Carlotta wore a diamond crown and a mantilla veil. They paraded through the streets as the people shouted, Viva el Imperador! Max felt like he was the emperor chosen not by Napoleon III, but by the divine will of God. The party raged all night, and Max and Carlotta thought they would never get to bed. Because uh-huh. <laughs> they're in their 30s, you know, they're like, right. they go to bed by like 8.30. <laughs> when they finally did get to bed, though, they found the presidential palace had been prepared for them in something of a rush. Because, uh-uh. I mean, nobody had been staying there for a while, mm-hmm. right? And usually when people did stay here, they didn't stick around for very long. Right. So everything had been just very hurriedly put together. Everything was still dirty. Rugs had been hastily thrown on dusty floors. Curtains were basically just like tacked up above the windows. And it's said that on their first night in Mexico City, they were driven from their bed by rats and ended up sleeping on a billiards table. So welcome <laughs> wow, to Mexico, guys. Know, right? God chosen emperor. On a billiards table. Uh-huh. Do you think that she turned to him and was like, good, good night, emperor. <laughs> like, <laughs> right? This is exactly the opulence I was expecting. And he's like, yeah, good night. Oh, hang on. Oh, there's an eight ball under my shoulder. <laughs> All right. So uh, we'll let them get some sleep on this billiards table. <laughs> yeah. Try and rest up before the final part of this story coming up. And we will be right back. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. 
I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything. A moment that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these very moments. The last couple of years has been the hardest season of our marriage, for sure. I'm surprised our marriage survived it. I think we both are. I think we both were barely holding on. Mm. Nothing compares to how hard this is. Their stories are full of candor, awe, and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. True behavior change is really identity change. Every action you take is a vote for the type of person you wish to become. Listen to A Slight Change of Plans on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, welcome back for the conclusion yeah. of Emperor Max and Carlotta. So soon after Max got to work, he was firm in his belief that he could turn Mexico around and it would become one of the great Western empires. And he looked over the liberal policies of President Juarez and pretty much was like, 
yeah, this all sounds good. Let's just <laughs> stick with this. <laughs> yeah. And that really pissed off the conservatives because, of course, they had brought him over to specifically not do any of these liberal things. <laughs> right. But Max and Carlotta did not care what the conservatives wanted or what they thought. They replaced conservative ministers and deputies with moderate liberals. They got heavily involved in rights for indigenous people. And they would even sit outside on the steps of the palace sometimes and just let people walk up and tell them their worries and concerns. Amazing. Like they were really of the people, by the people, for the people. They were foo-boo all the way. (laughs) (laughs) Well, for you, by us. So they were like, fi-boo? They were for... For you, by us. For you, by Europe. Phoebe. Phoebe. (laughs) (laughs) So Max is still going by Max, but Charlotte started going by Carlotta exclusively. This became her name for the rest of her life. Mm -hmm. And Max didn't seek her counsel as often as he did in Lombardy, Venetia, but she did rule in his place whenever he left the city, and she signed laws to improve working conditions for farmers, and she put in place a mandatory one-day break for workers. So the, the first weekend, I guess. Maybe. All right. A one-day break? My uh-huh. goodness. <laughs> she also fought hard for religious tolerance, and she set up an Office of Indigenous Affairs. Wow. With all that she did, Carlotta is often considered to be the first woman ever to rule in Latin America. I've heard the first woman ever to rule on the American continent, but I feel like that might discount some Native American tribes. I don't know enough to comment on that, Mm -hmm. but I've read it both ways. And it was tough for her here, but she wrote back home, quote, Put yourself in my place and ask yourself whether life at Miramar was preferable to our life here. No, no, a hundred times no. For my part, I prefer a full and active life with duties and responsibilities, even difficulties, if you will, to an idle existence spent in contemplating the sea from the top of a rock until the age of 70. (laughs) This is what I have left behind, and this is what I have gained. Balance one against the other, and you will no longer be surprised to hear that I am happier in Mexico. I get it. Yeah. I get that real hard. Yeah, she had energy. She had ambition. Yeah. Totally. She didn't want to just be painting all These day long. young people didn't just want to sit in palaces. If you remember in part one, she turned down the role of queen of Portugal. Oh, that right. was her first mm-hmm. suitor was going to be the king of Portugal. And she specifically said, I'm not interested in a crown. I don't want to just sit in a palace all day not doing anything. Mm-hmm. So, the, so her getting stuck at Miramar without a crown and still not doing anything all the time sounded terrible compared to being here and being an active leader in the community. That's what she really wanted, something to do. And they did have some, like, clearly some idealistic kind of leanings. They really felt like they could fix some shit that was wrong with the world. And they had sort of a crusading spirit. So, yeah, if you have that, you can't just sit around and see injustice anywhere in the world and feel like, well, I, can't, I should do I should do something right. about that. Right. And you got the, the blank slate here of the new world, too. True. I leave everything behind. Mm-hmm. I don't have to worry about my families and stuff like like right. so complicated over there. Mm-hmm. But this was just like fresh start. I feel like I could really get something done because there's not all this red tape set up. Yeah. She might even have liked the little billiards table night. <laughs> she was like, oh, How cute. darling, doesn't it feel so rustic? Maybe. We're really doing something here. <laughs> Although I will say that she loved her comforts. Okay, well. And her fancy dresses. <laughs> I don't know then. if she would have loved that billiards <laughs> I was table. right the first time. <laughs> now, this love of her role in Mexico was in spite of the fact that Max had been sleeping around oh, since his crowning no. as emperor. Max. 
I know, right? I mean, he wasn't really, again, wasn't really all that fond of sex. He didn't, like, do it all that often or anything. But he and Carlotta had virtually no sexual relationship, and there were always ladies around ready to get it on with Max. Sure. Or with an emperor or both. Right. But eventually, it did get them starting to talk about working on an heir again. Right. And they did try to get pregnant. Eventually, they decided that probably wasn't going to happen. So they were like, let's adopt. Mm -hmm. But they figured, let's make this adoption politically motivating. (laughs) (laughs) No, they were just like, let's make some moves while we're at it. And so they they were like, what if we adopted our own nephew, one of the sons of Max's younger brother, Archduke Carl Ludwig? Right, right. Then they'd have uh, a Habsburg... Mm-hmm. Archduke in line for the throne of Mexico. Keep it in the family, yeah, right? Yeah, perfect. But Ludwig was kind of dragging his feet. He was not really into this idea. He never really went or came around to it. So they went and adopted the two nephews of the daughter of Mexico's first emperor, Augustin de Aturbide. So this was like basically adoption blackmail for Carl Ludwig because they were like, well, if you don't adopt us one of your sons to inherit the throne of Mexico, it's going to go right back to the Aturbides and there mm. won't be a Habsburg here. Yeah. So it's up to you. I mean, that's up to you. <laughs> you know, we just want some kids. So anyway, <laughs> up to you. Let us know. <laughs> now, this never ended up convincing him, but if things had went differently, it's possible that Max and Carlotta might have adopted Franz Ferdinand, who was two years old at the time. So, I mean, I can't, again, with this story, it's just so crazy to me how one little change and we'd be living in a totally different world today. Can you imagine if Franz Ferdinand grew up a kid in Mexico yeah. instead of Austria? I mean, this is the guy who his assassination right. was the spark that made World War One start. Mm-hmm. I mean... We can't say that it wouldn't have happened anyway. Obviously, there were a lot more factors than Franz Ferdinand. But how different would Europe have been if that guy hadn't been there? That's very true. Sorry, I can't stand it with this story. (laughs) Meanwhile, the conservatives who had brought Max and Carlotta over here to rule with this this whole plan, Mm -hmm. you know, they thought, oh, these guys are pushovers. They're they're, again, they're they're liberals. We'll be able to manipulate them. We'll control them. The whole point is that we just need European powers here. Yeah. And they were losing their damn minds over everything that Max and Carlotta were doing. They were like, what what in the world? This isn't what we wanted. This wasn't the plan. Max was extending voting rights to people beyond just landholders. What? Outrageous. How could you you possibly be part of deciding how your country is run when you don't even own land in your country? (laughs) You don't own any of the countries. All you do is live here and experience it and work. (laughs) Make everyone food and stuff. What's the big deal? I mean, Max went so far as to offer President Juarez amnesty if he would just swear his allegiance to the crown. Hell, Max said he would make President Juarez the prime minister. Oh, wow. He was really trying to give an olive branch. I mean, I think they agreed about more than anybody else did. Sure. But Juarez said no. He said hell no. Obviously, Juarez was like, I'm a native indigenous Mexican who... It came into the presidency here. I'm not just going to recognize any power from from these European usurpers, mm-hmm. right? I don't care who you are. I don't care how progressive your shit is. Absolutely not. I'm not letting you come in. I'm not just going to bend the knee to you like that. Yeah. Plus, he had Washington on his side, you know? Must oh. be nice. It must be nice. <laughs> President Lincoln was still basically like, hey, 
yes, Juarez, I got your back, boo. I just got to finish this civil war first, which which feels like it's taking four score and seven years. <laughs> Am I right, folks? <laughs> oh, <laughs> nobody appreciates my jokes. <laughs> like Lincoln, you keep using Lincoln. the same joke yeah. over and over. I mean, this four score seven years thing. It's yeah. been you really dra- interesting. Math. You've been, you've okay, been using but... that joke for four score and seven years. Hey, yo. <laughs> Don't make us do a bunch of math in your fucking joke. Well, that's true, too. (laughs) (laughs) Now I got to calculate how much four scores. (laughs) Then in April of 1865, the Civil War ended. And America slowly turned its head and stared down Mexico. And when President Andrew Johnson succeeded Lincoln, he quickly invoked the Monroe Doctrine and recognized Juarez as the legitimate leader of Mexico. And then they started putting pressure on Napoleon III to end his support of Max's empire and withdraw French troops. The American army literally accidentally, quote unquote, lost arms depots to Juarez's men at the Mexican border so they could provide them with weapons, uh-huh. like, unofficially. Yeah, <laughs> like, oops, oh, oh we, no. you know, I had a whole bunch of guns and cannons around here somewhere, and I just go? don't know. I thought I left them at these coordinates, but they didn't seem to be there. Anyway, we're just going to walk away and not look now. Mm-hmm. Here you go. I'm just like, I guess I'll turn my head to the right. If uh-huh. anything happens to these weapons on my left, uh, I guess <laughs> I'll just miss it completely. Right. So Juarez just starts stalking his troops. Oh, yeah. And Napoleon, who really started this whole thing with one foot out the door anyway, quickly went, Quoi? Mexique? That old thing? Nah, I, I don't even care about Mexico, actually. I mean, who even is this Maximilian guy? Who told him to go there? <laughs> not me. He's not my friend. He's not my friend. <laughs> I don't know her. I don't, uh, I don't know her. <laughs> And his troops started to withdraw. And Napoleon, who once said, quote, my support will not fail you, even privately urged Max to give it up and come on home. Because he was like, by the way, my support is failing you. (laughs) Right, right. But Max knew a handful of things here that made that difficult. One, there was nothing waiting for him back home. Right. I mean, his brother had stripped his powers. And if he came back to Austria in defeat, it's not like the emperor was going to say, well, then here's everything you gave up back. Mm-hmm. He would say, you know, you knew what you were getting into. You mm-hmm. agreed, even though he didn't agree because he, no. he waited until it was too late to tell him he was giving everything up. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't going to give it back to him. At best, he'd just be living life like he was back at Miramar, bored and powerless. Mm-hmm. Plus, Max had spent a lot of his personal money in Mexico because the Mexican coffers were often dry. He also knew that he had a divine calling to rule Mexico. I mean, this was a truth to him. And he believed strongly that more people wanted him there than didn't. So he asked a small conference of his supporters to vote on whether he should abdicate. And all of them, 23 of them, said, no, he shouldn't do it. And Carlotta was also there encouraging him to stay strong. In October of 1865, Max was in a tough spot. Unusual for him, I know. Yeah, right. He had been distracting himself from the troubles of the country with his favorite things, building fancy houses and planting fancy gardens. Right. And, like, I get it. He needed to relax a little bit. There's a lot of strife going on. But this did not look really good to the locals who he was supposed to be all in favor of. That he was, like, puttering around a garden. Yeah, it reminds me back in part one, if you remember, that... When he went to Austria, to this council of Europeans who were all deciding what to do with Italy, 
and they didn't listen to him and he he was going to go back empty handed. He didn't go home. He went oh, back yeah. to Miramar and like chilled out there for three months and took a vacation. Because, again, when things are going well, when the people love Max, he is on fire. Mm-hmm. He can't be stopped. Yeah. But when it gets tough, he kind of retreats a little bit and doesn't really quite know what to do. When the going gets tough. Max gets going. Right. Um, And yeah, he went going to his garden and people were like, what the fuck are you doing? And between Juarez's resurgence, Max's liberal policies, the French leaving, and Max not really knowing what to do, he was losing a lot of support. Yeah. Also, like in Italy, doing all these things as rightly as he could meant no one was happy with him. Yeah. You know? Classic democratic problem. Right? Yeah. Every, if you're doing democracy right, everyone's a little bit sad. <laughs> <laughs> and then he issued the October decree that even he was not very proud of. It basically said anyone who formed an armed group without legal authority was to be judged by a court martial. And if they were found guilty, even if they just belonged to this group and they hadn't like done anything, mm-hmm. they would be executed within 24 hours. Wow. And it's estimated that more than 11,000 of Juarez's supporters were executed because of this decree. And, of course, that only inflamed the opposition against Max. Right. Because, again, he had come in talking all this big talk to a bunch of people who had had promises broken over and over and over again. Yeah. And then he went ahead and signed some crazy shit like this. It just didn't look good. I think that he thought people were more on the fence than they were Mm -hmm. and that. He's like, if I just put this really harsh sounding decree in place, everyone will back off and things will settle down and we can get back to normal. But people didn't back off. Mm-hmm. They doubled down and then his soldiers ended up executing a bunch of people for, for siding with the, the rebels, basically, at this point. In 1866, everyone saw the end coming for Max's empire. Napoleon had withdrawn the rest of his troops as Juarez's forces, bolstered by U.S. support, rallied together and moved down towards Mexico City. Carlotta decided there was only one way that she was going to be able to help her husband. She traveled back to Europe to personally persuade Napoleon to reconsider and provide military support to her husband. She boarded a ship with her two adopted sons, and she set sail for Paris. Napoleon got word about this ahead of time, and he sent a letter to her saying, like, Oh, I am, I'm very sick, actually. Really, really. Oh, 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 it's, uh, yeah, it's really bad. Oh, just both ends, everything is coming Whoa. out. Uh, you probably shouldn't even come, you know? Just, just why don't you just forget about the whole thing? But that didn't dissuade Carlotta. She marched into his palace at St. Cloud with a 20-page brief that she had written out with her arguments, and she sat him down and one by one told him everything he needed to do to help back in Mexico. And Napoleon was like, oh, you know I can't do anything without the support of my ministry, and they don't really want to help, and there's just not a lot of money left. You know how it is. It's a a whole thing, everything. Complicated. The whole thing. (laughs) But Carlotta was firm, and she said, you signed a treaty with us at Miramar. Mm -hmm. You promised Max you'd have his back. You have to help. But Napoleon refused to negotiate any more financial or military favors for Mexico. He basically was like, it's your country now. You fix it. I don't care what I fucking said before. Which is what he was angling for way back when, Mm -hmm. when his countrymen were getting mad about the war over there he was like let's just get max over there and then it's max's empire it's not a french empire it's the mexican empire and it's not my problem anymore yep so they yeah he totally did that and carlotta collapsed like a serious collapse 
She was absolutely hysterical. Yeah. Two days later, she met with him to try again. But again, the meeting was cut short and Carlotta started to have a mental breakdown. Now, some historians say that there's evidence that she may have had some form of dementia or another mental illness. Haslip writes in her book that one of the Mexican court doctors had been putting bromide in her coffee and rumors had spread that the empress was being slowly poisoned into madness. Others say that she had been psychologically damaged ever since the death of her mother when she was 10. She allegedly asked them to bury her mother next to her bedroom so that she could continue to play with her. And oh. yeah. Well, you might just be 10 and not understand. Right. That's kind of one of the things, too. But but a lot of some of them, again, this is such an abridged version of this story. Some historians point to a lot of other little examples throughout her life that are oh. like, she might have been a little crazy. She did seem to have a bit of an obsef- obsessive uh, relationship she, with Max. I was about to say, she um, does get um, fixated, right, very fixated right. on things. So. And her father and her grandmother had just died right before she arrived in Europe. So this, along with her struggles with Napoleon and all the chaos back home with her husband, could have triggered a mental breakdown. Mm. Whatever the cause, she became paranoid. And she started to think that assassins were trying to poison her everywhere she went. She barely ate or drank anything, and she wouldn't trust anyone. She even made a stop at the Vatican to ask for help from Pope Pius IX. Starved and confused, she barged into his private room where he was having breakfast and threw herself at his feet and begged for his protection from assassins, Napoleon's spies. And then she grabbed his hot chocolate dipped her fingers in it and licked them clean, shouting, I'm starving! Everything they give me is poisoned! The Pope, quote, treated her as gently as if she were a frightened child, and he rang for another cup of chocolate for his guest, but she told him it would be poisoned, and she begged him to share his own with her. Jeez. He's probably like, well, go ahead and bring another one in here for me, for me please. because <laughs> this lady just put her hands in my drink. Right, right. <laughs> So, yeah, he was getting a little annoyed, but he let her have the drink, at which point she suddenly got quite calm and rational, and she started talking about Mexico. But she would pause at random intervals to ask him what the best antidote for poison was. Weird. Quote, the rosary and prayer was his answer. Which... Very helpful. <laughs> Thank you so much. I think that's what happened last time I called poison control. <laughs> yeah. They were like, they don't can. get it in your eyes, but if you do, rosary and prayer. <laughs> So the Pope finally kind of got rid of her by asking his cardinal to show her around the Vatican Museum. Don't you want to go see the shiny things? Yes. Basically. There's a painting, some famous paintings. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. So he came in and picked her up and started to lead her in the museum, at which point the Pope managed to slip out the back and make his escape. Mm. They had a doctor who was disguised as a chamberlain bring her back to her hotel. But when she arrived, she realized her keys were missing. They had been taken away with the intention of keeping her locked up overnight. And so she went into a fit, screaming that assassins were waiting for her inside her room. So she begged to go back to the Vatican and stay under the protection of the Pope. And these guys, they didn't know what to do. You got a bunch of old religious dudes standing around like, there's a crazy lady in my room here. She's screaming and crying about that. I don't know what to do. They, they said in 1800 years of papal history, this had never happened before. They, they brought... were like, I tried the rosary and nothing happened. <laughs> right. They brought her back screaming and wailing. And with the utmost patience, the Pope asked for the Vatican Library to be converted into a bedchamber for her. 
and said, quote, Nothing is spared me in this life. Now a woman has to go mad in the Vatican. <laughs> this was the first time that a woman had ever spent the night inside the building. Wow. I'll say that, that we, we know, know of. of. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, thinking the same thing. <laughs> right. I was like, mm, are you sure? They're very secretive over there. <laughs> it's the first one they didn't have to hide. Yeah, there you go. Back in Mexico, things weren't much better for Max. Juarez's troops were closing in on Mexico City, and Max and his small army had to flee to the town of Querétaro. He had few counselors left. There had been an opportunity for him to flee the country, but he declined. It's rumored that he may have received a letter wrongly saying that Carlotta had died in Europe. And at this point, he may have decided to just stay until the bitter end. Mm. Soon, Carataro was surrounded by Juarez's army, and there was an amazing 72-day battle where Haslip writes, quote, Emperor and soldiers alike fought with the same reckless bravery, and where even the ordinary citizens, down to the nuns in the convent, helped in the defense. Damn. Which is awesome. It's making me think of the Battle of Hogwarts. <laughs> you got the suits of armor clanking down the stairs. Uh-huh, the nuns. They're all involved. All those wizard nuns. Oh, yeah, they t- they're tossing <laughs> plants over the side <laughs> of the walls. And Max never lost his cool in all this chaos of battle. He wrote back to a friend in Miramar saying, quote, The other day, a grenade exploded almost at my feet. I'm sending you a small piece as a souvenir to put in our museum at Miramar. <laughs> like, <laughs> no big deal. Uh, just a grenade blue. Here's a piece. <laughs> and three times when they were pinned down, he asked one of his soldiers, a young boy, if there was any chance they could break through. And three times this kid had to tell him, no, we'll get mowed down by their gunfire if we try. And Max responded with, quote, well, then, let us hope for a lucky bullet. <laughs> like, that's, that's so chill. But the city finally fell in May of 1867. And Max tried to escape through enemy lines with the aid of one of his few surviving allies, but he was captured. A rushed court-martial was put together, and Max was convicted and sentenced to death. Back in France, Napoleon was full of excuses. He had to answer for the safety of the Austrian Archduke in an experiment that many had thought was doomed from the start. And he basically said, uh, I tried to tell him to leave, but he refused my advice and decided to put together a ragtag army and win this thing for himself. <laughs> in a speech at the opening of the spring session of the Legislative Assembly, he casually referenced, quote, the unfortunate events which prevented France from carrying out to the end the task of regenerating an ancient empire. When the sacrifices seemed to me to exceed the interests which brought us there, I resolved to evacuate the troops. But in the speech, he mentioned nothing of Max, nor of the pressure from the U.S. which pushed him out. That's so frustrating. I mean, Seriously. like, first of all, he's saying... Oh, w the only reason we went there was to help revive an ancient empire. We were going to we we're going to get them going again, like the good old days of the Aztecs. Yeah. Like I don't think so, dude. Super altruistic reasons. Uh -huh. Nothing nothing personal. And then it's like, well, you know, we we just we were losing too much, so I decided it was best if we come home. Uh, you know, that, that was my decision. You're welcome. Mhm. Mm and then totally no mention of Max. Nothing like I'm not even going to point out that I doomed this guy right. by lying to him and telling him this is a good idea when we all knew it wasn't. 
And why, also, why would he? Also, I'm not going to point out how the U.S. scared me shitless into leaving. That's true. Also. That's also true. Politics. No, no, no. We need to put a nice spin on this. Mm-hmm. So it was up to Austria to try and save Max's life. And they made an appeal directly to the United States to try and persuade Juarez to release him and send him home. Franz Joseph even restored all of Max's titles and rights. Oh, wow. He was convinced that the rebels would not dare to shoot an Austrian archduke. Well, Ooh. you've got a, a different idea about how things happen outside <laughs> your own home there, buddy. It's <laughs> so true. I mean, this is like, That's well, bad. but nope. he's got a title. You wouldn't kill a man with a title, would you? Right, and they're like, like, I don't care about your fucking titles. I got a title, too. The title <laughs> of my book is I Killed the Austrian Oster. <laughs> Damn. Other European leaders and prominent citizens appealed directly to Juarez. Even the author Victor Hugo, who was a staunch liberal who opposed the occupation of Mexico, and Giuseppe Garibaldi, who was an Italian general who helped unite a free Italy, they both made public pleas for Max's life to be spared. Because they were like, we don't want an emperor either, but like, don't kill this nice yeah. guy. He's a yeah. nice guy. He's right. just a patsy for Napoleon III, basically. basically. Yeah, exactly. Now, Juarez respected Max, and he treated him and his generals with compassion while they were prisoners. But he was kind of in a tough spot, too. I mean, he couldn't just come off as a tool of the Americans, you right. know, just because they'd helped him win this war. He couldn't say, well, now I'll do whatever they say. And he said that Max had no right to be treated as a prisoner of war. He said that Max usurped the throne with the help of foreign arms and, quote, incited Mexicans to revolt against the lawful government of the country and with his own hand signed the October decree by which hundreds of innocent people had been put to death. Right. And y'all, no matter how much we love Max, no matter how progressive his laws were, I mean, even him offering Juarez the role of prime minister in his cabinet, Juarez wasn't wrong here. No, it's true. The only thing I'd argue is that it wasn't really Max who incited the Mexicans to revolt against the lawful government. That was the conservatives who then oh, brought right. Max in as their leader and again lied to him and convinced him that everyone wanted him there. Mm -hmm. So that, that one I'll give to Max. But he's not wrong that a European came into Mexico and said, I'll rule you now. And he's like, no, we're, we can't just take that. That That's just such a frustrating thing about politics, especially yeah. foreign policy, when you're like feeling so much like this is even even Juarez is like, yeah, you'd be a good emperor if we wanted an emperor, but we don't want an emperor. Right. So I can't give you any benefit of the doubt. Right. I can't let you off easy. Yeah. I have to set an example that, no, we're not going to put up with this t kind yeah. of thing. Exactly. Early in the morning of June 19th, 1867, Emperor Maximilian I and two of his generals stood in front of a firing squad of seven Mexican soldiers. He had walked there with his head held high, and he turned to one of the men beside him and he said, quote, To die is not as difficult as you think. The soldier in charge of the firing squad was apparently so moved by the emperor's behavior that he attempted to apologize to him. But Max interrupted him and said, quote, You are a soldier, and it is your duty to obey. Max went to each of the members of the firing squad, and he handed them each an ounce of gold. And he asked them to aim well and not to shoot his face so that his mother could look upon him again. The guns were readied, and Max stepped forward and called out in Spanish, quote, I forgive everyone. 
I pray that everyone may also forgive me, and I hope that my blood, which is about to be shed, will bring peace to Mexico. Viva Mexico! Viva Independencia! And with that, the order was given, and seven guns fired simultaneously. There was no cheering. Even the soldiers who had fought so hard to capture Max were silenced. That's so sad. Like, nobody wanted to kill this guy. Yeah, and no one was happy that he was dead. Like you said, I mean, it was politics. And it's terrible that someone who only ever wanted to do very much the right thing. Mm -hmm. You know, he was a little ambitious. He definitely wanted power. But he wanted power because he knew he could do good things. Right. You know, and I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you're like, put me in charge because I really think I can help people not the systems Mm -hmm. not the people who are already fine but i want to help the indigenous people i want to help the poor i want to help these people who aren't independent feel like they have some independence yeah that was his whole goal i happen to have the clout yes that you don't have and i want to use it for your benefit right but this was just a period of time where people didn't want the clout at all they literally were like i don't want to be associated with that and so it was like he was just the right guy in the wrong time. I mean, the best thing he probably could have done was gone over there, taken control as emperor and said, all right, I declare that President Juarez is in charge. You know, I right. mean, like that's then, yeah. it, it takes someone with that power giving up their power to yes. really make a difference. Um, but but, he, you know, he just felt he was very religious. He did feel divine mandate that it was best if he was in charge. I mean, again, these people are raised their whole lives to believe that they're chosen by God sure. to be rulers. Uh, he just happened to be one who had some pretty good ideas. Yeah. And it's just like in part one, it's it's outrageous, it's heartbreaking, and it's insane to me that all of his goodness made everyone mad. Yeah. Because if you remember when he was in charge of Italy, mm-hmm. the Italians didn't like that the Italians were happy with him because they were like, no, you should be fighting against this kind of control. And it makes sense. Who who could be next? Sure, this guy's great, but exactly. who comes after him? Right. But still, it's, it's so sad to see that doing the right thing gets you in the most trouble mm-hmm. in these situations. You know, maybe if he'd been a ruthless dick, <laughs> the conservatives would have supported him. The French might have stayed. You know, who knows? It's true. He'd probably be alive, maybe, I guess. Maybe. I don't know. Who knows? It's it's hard to to see how these things would shake out any differently. Yeah. But it's just. Yeah, he certainly was just uh, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. That, that he's that, that's like his whole life. Yeah. And he's someone that the, one of the reasons I was drawn so hard to this story is just I, I, I think for a story of an emperor, it's remarkably relatable mm-hmm. that Failure doesn't always come from where you expect it. You know, you don't always lose because you screwed up. You know, no one's no one has full control over their environment. Mm -hmm. And I think no matter how much Max wanted to do the right thing, I think he always thought he had a little more control than he did. Right. Um, Even when he showed up, it's like, well, I'm emperor now. So whatever I say goes. But he was in the longer version of the story. He was struggling constantly to enact these progressive policies. Of course, the conservatives who brought him there were under the impression that they were going to control him. And in a lot of ways, they did. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Uh, they just hated him for what he was doing on his own. Well, and he might have also had the good person Achilles heel. Right. Which is where you think, surely everyone just like me mm-hmm. wants the same thing. Yeah. All the people to be happy. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like yeah. ascribing the same goals and just being like, I, you just have a different method, but we all have the same goal. Mm. When in fact, everyone around him had a completely different goal than yeah. he did. So he's working towards one thing, thinking they're all working toward that and just having different ideas maybe, but like they were working toward a totally different thing. Yeah. And he'd never fit into that plan. Yeah. Oh, breaks my heart. And back in Europe, after her bizarre incident with the Pope, Carlotta's brother, Prince Philippe, came to collect her and bring her back to Miramar. Her other brother, who had been crowned King Leopold II of Belgium after the death of their father, was really worried about her, obviously, and he sent doctors to care for her. She was diagnosed with, quote, madness with fixed ideas of persecution. And she was sequestered in Miramar, guarded by Austrian security agents. But she believed her husband Max had ordered her to stay at Miramar, and her family wasn't really sure how to tell her about his death. Yeah. They thought that it would destroy what little remained of her sanity Mm. if she knew he had been killed. When Franz Joseph restored Max's titles, Carlotta also became an archduchess once again. Because of this, by law, Max's family became her legal guardians instead of her own family. But her own family pleaded with the in-laws to allow her to return to Belgium and be cared for by her brothers and her nephews. And, you know, Franz Joseph was like, sure, yeah. Do you know? Do what you want to do, um, but convincing Carlotta was going to be pretty difficult because again, she thought Max had told her to stay in Mar- Miramar, right. so she was not going to be very easy to move. Right. So her family decided the best course of action was to fake a telegram from Max telling her to go to Brussels, and that worked. So in July of 1867, she left Miramar for the last time. Carlotta finally learned of Max's death in January of the following year, and it did indeed break her. She wrote nearly 400 letters to a friend in Mexico. Sometimes they were up to 20 pages long. And in them, she declared herself dead at the fall of the Mexican Empire. She worshipped Max's memory, and she collected everything that had ever belonged to him. She moved into a small castle very close to the king's own palace, And there, he and his sons took extremely good care of her. She disappeared from the public entirely and spent her days in long silences or heated discussions with imaginary dignitaries, which her lady-in-waiting said were, quote, too incoherent for one to be able to guess what thoughts occupied her brain. But there were shreds of reality in them. Once she said, quote, Sir... One told you that one had had a husband, a husband, sir, then madness. Madness is made of events. If he had only been helped by Napoleon. Oh, my God. So you can just see what's replaying in her head like these horrors over and over again. Uh, It's tragic. Well, and, you know, I know we didn't bring it up earlier why she might have had a mental breakdown, but probably all the cognitive dissonance of doing the right thing and still getting all the worst outcomes was also had to have been a factor. That would drive me insane. Right. During World War I, Belgium was invaded, but her status as Archduchess of Austria protected her from the Germans. A sign was affixed to the gates of her castle by a German general, which read, quote, 
This domain, property of the Crown of Belgium, is occupied by Her Majesty the Empress of Mexico, Archduchess Maximilian of Austria, sister-in-law of Emperor Franz Joseph, our illustrious ally. I order the German soldiers passing by here not to ring the bell and to leave the place untouched. Damn, that's great. That is great. Thank yeah. you. She did not need no weird visitors. Yeah, from she the whole no German world army war. marching like, up and no. knocking on her door. She lived out the rest of her life at that castle and outlived everyone else who was involved in the Second Mexican Empire. She died peacefully at home on January 19, 1927, at 86 years old. Some say that with her dying breath, she clutched her rosary and said, Mexique. Other accounts say that she was laid on her bed instead of a lounger that she had requested, and her final words were, quote, I expressed myself badly in words, and I will regret it. <laughs> <laughs> Which I love. I love that. That's hilarious. She's like, well, I guess I didn't make myself clear enough. I'm going to die in this bed, and I'm going to be real bad about it in the afterlife. <laughs> but we prefer the words from Jose Iturriaga's book, The Mexican Writings of Carlotta of Belgium. Quote, Remind the universe of the beautiful blonde-haired foreigner... God willing, we are remembered with sadness, but without hatred. Well, I do. I remember them without hatred. And with sadness. And with, with a sad lot of them. sadness. Yeah, I'm very sad for them. Carlotta was buried in the royal crypt of the Church of Our Lady of Lachen, near her home where she grew up. Max's body was embalmed and displayed in Mexico for a year, but the Austrians eventually collected it and returned him to the imperial crypt in Vienna. In Carretaro, on the Hill of Bells, where Max was executed, a memorial chapel was built by Mexico in 1900 after diplomatic relations between Mexico and Austria were mended. It was designed by a Mexican architect, Maximiliano Mitzel, in an eclectic Viennese style. And it was commissioned by Max's brother, Emperor Franz Joseph. I love that they're, he's got such a complicated history in Mexico, mm-hmm. but they built a memorial chapel to him. Well, I mean, I think when, that's beautiful. when Paulo reached out with this story, yeah. he even said, you know, they, they, they lured him here with lies. Yeah. I mean, everybody knew. Yeah. It seems at least it's common knowledge Juarez at this knew. point that a lot of people knew that he had been told a lot of bullshit. Yeah. I think Juarez knew. I think mm-hmm. I think even then they were like, oh, man, I hate that it's got to be you. Right. Because I like you, mm-hmm. buddy. But, but, it but damn, you. it is you. And that sucks. There's only one thing to do. Yeah. I mean, it sucks that that's, you know, the one thing you can do. I, right. I wish that it wasn't like that. But that is well, what politics are like. I mean, if you ask me also, who I'm not in favor of capital punishment, I don't think it's ever a good idea. Right. I don't think it was a good idea here either. But mm-hmm. um, because there was any number of. I think, I mean, I don't know the politics of the time. Mexico was certainly broken and needed to establish themselves to the U.S., to Europe, to everyone mm-hmm. that we're strong and we don't need you coming in here screwing with our stuff. But I don't think that means they had to kill him. I think Juarez could have just as easily said, we're not like you, Europe. We're compassionate mm-hmm. and we care. And you know what? We're going to. I don't know, we're going to send this guy to the U.S. and they can deal with him or something. Like, you know, just not not say no harm, no foul to Europe, but something besides this execution. 
but it it's you can see where he's coming from too again he's he's got a appear to be a strong ruler in the face of he's staring down all these European emperors and the United States mm-hmm. and trying to make a name for himself after having been in exile and had right. to fight to re- to take his country back. Yeah, and well and trying to establish like hey, we we're good. Like we don't right. we can govern ourselves. Yeah. I have to show you that I no not only do I not need you, but I don't want you and I will react badly if you show up. Oh. Like I have to show you that. Well, and also, I don't want to listen to what I'm not taking your advice yeah. for what to do next. Mm-hmm. And so I almost feel like the Austrians should have told the U.S. reverse psychology. Tell him, yeah, shoot him. Yeah, you should shoot that guy. And then Mexico would have been like, well, we're not a tool of the United States. We're not going to do what you say. We're going to let him go. <laughs> well, you know. Oh, no, don't do that. Hindsight and all that. Well, exactly. I'm all, I'm borderline like frustrated because I'm just like, there's... This is so abridged, it, and I and I I hope I really hope to the listeners that this came off as you know with as much. I hope you feel as strongly about the story as I do. I love this story, and there's so much more to it that I wish we had just hours and hours and hours to tell. Um, I know when we were we going don't. over it, you were like, "Why is this not a four season HBO show?" I am ready. Okay, and HBO, it, it, it would work. Here's the deal, HBO. I know you're listening. Call me up because <laughs> I have got the show for you and this there are so many other characters we didn't even get to talk about like the mexican generals mm-hmm. and and max's right hand men and, and like his family mom, sni- mother-in-law emperor franz joseph's wife they're gonna get an episode right. because she is also crazy <laughs> and also tragic and i when i read how she treated Charlotte, which was very rudely. She mm-hmm. did not like Charlotte. I was, I had this whole, I had paragraphs in there about the two of them that I had to take out for time. And I was like, man, this lady sucks. She is a <laughs> nightmare. And then I went to look at her Wikipedia and just like get a crash course in what she was like. And halfway through that, I'm like, this is the, I feel so badly for this crazy woman. Yeah. Like she had it so rough. And she actually, uh, similarly to Max and Charlotte, in in reverse, Emperor Franz Joseph was crazy about her, and she was not that into him. Oh. Um, so there's there's just a whole other story there. But so many characters in this world that like you could have a a, a fourteen person cast like main characters yeah. across on, on two continents mm-hmm. in in many many different countries. Oh my god! Uh, for so... uh, I think easy six seasons. Yeah, and so of many dense story. Yeah, so many great locations, Ugh. like beautiful and like parts of history that people don't really talk about. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. I feel like we got the Tudors, we got right. the Vikings, <laughs> we got the Crown. Yeah, we got the, you know what I mean. Yeah, but who is who is looking at eighteen thirties Austria right. and shit? Like I didn't know anything about this Lombardy Venetia thing. No. I mean none of that. And then I know you had to skip a whole bunch of stuff that was really interesting. They went to so many different places yeah. and there was all these cool revolutions going on and just exciting, like, global politics. Right. So, I mean, again, Fiona, I know you're out there reading uh, the um, the William and uh, Ellen Craft book right now. Yes. Uh, pick up pick up this book by Joan Haslip next and everybody grab that grab I, I have not read the new book that just came out The Last Emperor of Mexico mm-hmm. by uh, Edward Shawcross but I intend to um, because I want to know what's new in this yeah. story what else we've learned um, and just oh god I mean it's so 
thank you again, Paolo, for sending us this story because there's all these little pockets of history mm-hmm. that you don't. Of course, we've been around for thousands of years. There's billions of people. There's yeah. been billions and billions of people on the planet, <laughs> and they've all got cool stories. Um, you know, and you can't learn them all. So maybe you're here listening to this show because you just want the quick hour long Reader's Digest right. version of all these stories, or in this episode's case, many hours long. <laughs> um, but uh, but I'm so glad to know it now. Yes. Like it's one I could have lived my whole life never knowing and it wouldn't have mattered to me at all. But I'm so into it. Mm-hmm. These two people are fascinating to me. I am heartbroken that she, again, how much time could we spend on just Carlotta in Europe? After she got home and and had her mental breakdown, we could talk about that for a long time because it's not like she just sat around doing nothing. Right. Um, but uh, but I hope that this little taste uh, was as flavorful for you as it was for me, because um, I'm just I'm just, I'm rambling now because I'm so passionate about this particular story. I love it. I love it. It's beautiful. It's heartbreaking. It's fascinating. It's cool. Mm-hmm. They're great. I I love them, and also, I, you know, they had their their flaws. Yeah. But although when we were going through it, I was kind of like, oh, feeling bad for them that they were sort of ahead of their time in yeah. all of these political ways sure. and how they felt about how people should be, you know, that that rulers should be very community based and from the uh-huh. population and stuff like that. But I'm like, you know, truthfully, I think I really believe everyone is born exactly when they're supposed to be born oh, and yeah. they needed to be there to push push those ideas at the time that if there was no one saying anything that was weird at this time, right. you never go anywhere. Yeah. So I'm 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 sad that it turned out how it turned out, but I'm very glad they were where they right. were where they were and that they did what they did and made what mark they made on history yeah. because you I mean, I I guess you couldn't say that they had made huge changes for a bunch of people in Mexico Mm -hmm. or anything, but I think they showed people what they wished it was like. Yeah. And everyone was so upset that they they were that he was killed or that he was even when they were just driven out of of uh, um, Lombardy Lombardy Venetia. Like they were like, damn, you know, obviously we want you to go because we want to be an independent place. But, you know, you did a great job and it's really too bad that you can't that you're just not the right guy for right now. Uh-huh. And then it, it kept happening to him. And it's just like, I, I guess I'm I'm just glad that he was there to whisper at least and say the things that he said and yeah. have people go, you know, that guy has some really good ideas. That's yeah. true. That's real. That worked. Absolutely. That worked more than anything. He yeah. got popular support because of that. Yeah. And I'm sure I that... need popular support. Maybe I'll do some of that. You right. Know? I'm sure that did have an impact. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think that they did have a, a huge impact on on Italy, Austria, and Mexico, and France to some degree, too. Yeah. Um, because even in the very short time, again, there were only ever two emperors in Mexico, and neither of them were there for very long. And of course, Mexico hasn't been an empire since. Right. Uh, Max was emperor there for about three years, a little less than three. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but had it been anyone else, who knows what the outcome would have been? I mean, th- again, one of the reasons I love this story and one of my favorite things about learning history is seeing how delicately it's all woven together and mm-hmm. any change could yeah. change everything. And you see that here. If it had been anyone else, maybe Juarez wouldn't have been able to come back and take over again. Maybe things would have gotten worse. Maybe France would have stuck around. Or maybe it would have been even a bigger of a disaster and the conservatives would have ended up taking over. And 
Juarez never would have come back. You know, yeah. any Maybe number of Max things. Maybe Max would have ruled for a very long time and been great. And then right. the next guy would have been exactly. maybe less great. Exactly. And then the guy after that would have been really fucked up. And right. now there's this crazy Mexican empire full of assholes. Like, maybe, who knows? Maybe Franz Ferdinand uh, it gets adopted by Max, grows up in Mexico, still gets assassinated there. <laughs> and like World War Two or World War One sparks and it's, you know, Mexico. Right. Versus everyone. I don't know. <laughs> or Franz Ferdinand is in Mexico growing up and he goes, you know what? I just got a wild hair to go to Sarajevo for some reason. <laughs> I'm just going to go go there for a little vacay. Right. There's no telling. Knows, I mean, yeah. we could we could butterfly effect this thing all day long. Well, that's why I love Speculation Station. You can make anything happen in there. Oh, that's right. So we could speculate all day. About... I don't even think we went to Speculation Station this Probably time. Probably not. <laughs> all right. Well, Speculation Station... <laughs> Maybe all this took place in Speculation Station, <laughs> and it's all a dream, and you're going to wake up tomorrow, and you're going to be Max, and you're going to be like, oh, I dreamed I was in the future, and there was a podcast that said how horribly my life went, and you'll make all the changes you need to make to survive. And your wife goes, what's a podcast? <laughs> you're like, you okay, you're like, you're like, don't worry about it. You're crazy. <laughs> no, she's like, stop gaslighting me. And he's like, I'm not. I literally think that you might have like something going on. And she's they like, said it in the podcast. <laughs> she's like, wow, now you sound crazy. <laughs> uh, and then they both end up locked up in the castle. <laughs> <laughs> so, wow, we ended up right back where we were. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> we better let you go. We've been here for so long. And I love this episode, but I am letting it drag. So. But yes, as always, we would love to hear what you think about this story. Hopefully you love it as much as we did yeah. and we're as touched by these guys' story as we were. Yeah. Please reach out. Our email is romance at iheartmedia.com. That's right. Or find us on Twitter and Instagram. My handles are at oh great, it's Eli. And I'm at Dynamite Boom. And the show is at Ridic Romance. That's right. So follow along. Tune in next week. We've got another very exciting episode for you full of... Oh, you nerds are going to love it. I'll just say that. <laughs> <laughs> I have been enjoying it myself. Yes. Uh, so stay tuned, and we will see you at the next one. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. So long, friends. It's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4. Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. 
what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.